Welcome to True Crime on Easy Street. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm Scott Wright. And I'm Katie Givens. And we are coming to you from the Easy Street. You almost said live, didn't you? I almost said live. Well, we're live. We are live right now. Yeah. This will be recorded and published out into the world. It's like the, the Tonight Show. It's purple icon. Tape. Okay, yeah. So we are. We're live on tape uh, from the Easy Street Restaurant Bar and Performance Hall. Did I get it all? Yep. Restaurant bar, performance hall, bar, 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 bar. Yeah. my favorite place, the bar. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And so we're so glad that Scott sobered up long enough to uh, join us <laughs> here today too. for our very first episode, uh, True Crime on Easy Street podcast. What are we talking about today, guys? We are talking about the 1982 murder of a 13-year-old girl by someone that everybody in this part of the country, or in our part of the state, really, uh, has heard of in their lifetime, if they're of the correct age. Okay. Dan Neely, a notorious uh, murderess from the 80s uh, who's still in jail today, thank goodness, and we'll tell you all about it. Exactly. We'll get to that. First, though, how do you find us? If you want to come see us, you want to come to a live show, where are are we located? Where are we? Well, the way the Chamber of Commerce would tell you how to find Cherokee County in northeast Alabama is to draw a triangle using lines drawn between Atlanta, Birmingham, and Chattanooga. If you look in the center of that triangle, that's pretty much where we are, kind of the edge of the Appalachians, where uh, the mountains start to drop off, and there's some ravines and a canyon. We'll get to that, and a, a river, or several rivers, and a lake. So a really nice, not yet found by most of society, tourist location. <laughs> right? Exactly. So drop whatever you're doing, wherever you are, all over the world. We've given you all of the information you need. Get on a plane. And and come join us if you can find us here. And yes. you say, you say Appalachian. How should I have said it? I don't know. I've always said Appalachian. Oh, Appalachian. I definitely say Appalachian. 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 I don't know. I just I don't. Maybe I did it wrong. I don't know. It sounds. It weird certainly wouldn't be the first time. We should stop. saying It sounds it. weird when you say it as well. Somewhere our listener is going. Ah, Get stop on with saying it. that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. So here we are in. Cherokee County, Alabama, what a beautiful little small town. And we're going to talk about a case that became urban legend, almost here, except that it was true. This was what parents used to keep their kids in line around here. Don't talk to strangers. Don't get in a car with a stranger. Don't take anything from strangers. You remember what happened to that little girl. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it was one of those typical cases where... Before that, people felt safe leaving their doors unlocked and, and letting their kids roam by themselves in places like shopping malls. But after that, the attitudes changed. It was stay in groups. Don't now, get Scott, in those cars. you and I remember shopping malls. I remember, yes, I do. Yes. But for the listeners who are Katie's age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fortunately <laughs> for her and unfortunately for the show, Katie does not remember uh, what happened in 1982 because she was not yet. Here. I think we discussed it. Katie, would you please tell our listener or listeners? Hopefully maybe there's, there's more multiple. than one. Maybe. Me. Maybe. But will you please tell them, I'm going to say that optimistically, yeah, how old your parents were in 1982? In 1982, I think my mother was in the eighth grade. My dad would have been in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I was not yet. All right, Scott, how old were you in 1982? I was in the sixth grade with her dad. <laughs> So I was 12 oh. years old. Okay, great. And I was three, so I was doing whatever, you know, three-year-olds do at that time. But I do remember shopping malls, and I do remember it being a wonderful uh, time during adolescence to be able to go to the mall, 
You get dropped off at the mall. You walk around inside the building. You mm-hmm. can window shop. You can go to the food court. You can go to the arcade. You can go to the movies. Yeah, all lucky, these things. Your lucky mom and dad gave you a few bucks to put in your pocket, maybe to get some tokens at Aladdin's Castle, which will factor into this uh, yes. story today. And it was a, it was a it was a big empty room with red neon lights filled with what was the closest we had to video games. I mean, they were video games, but not like you can play on your phone these days. These things were as big as a refrigerator. And played for a quarter at a time for five or ten minutes if you were good at it. And uh, that's where this case kind of starts. And I remember those uh, Aladdin's castles very well. In fact, I remember that one. I had, I've had i spent time in that very same Aladdin's castle where this story begins. So, And this Aladdin's castle, this shopping mall, was in Rome, Georgia, That correct? is correct, yeah. Aladdin's okay. castle was the game room inside Riverbend Mall in Rome, Georgia. If you are familiar with the Rome, Georgia area today, this... Location is, is no longer there, but if you have been to the Outback Steakhouse or the uh, Barnes & Noble, or is it Books a Million? In, it's in Barnes & Noble. Noble. Barnes & Noble. So if you've been to that area of Rome over on the east side of town, that was the location where uh, Riverbend Mall was until uh, 15, 20 years ago. Right. So let's get started then. Scott, tell us what happened. Uh, well, in, on September the 25th, 1982, a little girl named Lisa Ann Milliken uh, who had been abused as a child and was spending some time at a foster home a few miles away with some other girls. They all jumped into a van to go and enjoy a Saturday afternoon, just like we described, at the mall, hanging out with your friends, maybe a few bucks for the game room, a few bucks for a movie, the Orange Julius, maybe a chocolate chip cookie or whatever. Uh, and when they met back up after an hour on their own unattended uh, or unsupervised in the mall, Lisa Ann Milliken was gone and they couldn't find her. Uh, mall security got involved in the search. Eventually, the Rome police had to be called. They called back to the foster home that the girls had left from, thinking maybe she'd gotten another ride to go back. Lisa Ann Milliken was a troubled child, like I said. She'd been abused at home. She was there uh, at this uh, foster home, but she had already attempted to get away a few times. She'd run away from a couple of other foster homes. I don't want to say that no one was concerned because I wasn't there, but I think the first suspicion that a lot of folks who had gotten to know Lisa Ann might have thought was, well, she's run away again. So, you know, the, the, there was an all-points bulletin put out, a description of what she was wearing when she was missing. That had all been sent out to all the authorities in Rome, Georgia. So the search began immediately, uh, but nothing happened. She wasn't found um, for three days. Okay. And so then we start getting phone calls into what? The Rome Police Department, yeah, the local um, law enforcement. The next, uh, maybe two days later, three days later, it would have been three days later that the first phone call came, and that was to the Rome Police Department on September the 29th, or the 28th, rather. And uh, it was basically, uh, I don't want to say it was admission of guilt, but it was a it was a very confusing call for the Rome Police Department because the first words out of the caller's mouth, it was a female voice, and she said, have you folks found the little girl who is on run from the foster home. And the Rome police eventually or initially thought that it was a might be a prank call, but the call came in. Uh, they, they went around and, and did some searching to see if they could figure out where the call came from. Uh, another call came into the to a local radio station in Rome uh, and accused the police department of attempting to cover up a murder of a young girl. At that point, the, the information had progressed to where this girl's been killed and we know where she is and then the third call came into the DeKalb County Alabama Sheriff's Office which is where Little River Canyon is located and it was where Lisa Ann's body was ultimately found but it was these series of phone calls that 
made the police department uh, in Rome and in DeKalb County realize that they had a serious incident on their hands, and eventually the, the calls said, you need to go look for Lisa Ann Milliken's body, who was on run from the foster home in Cedartown in Little River Canyon, and that's where she was ultimately found. And it was the phone calls that led the, the authorities to find her. So when they find Lisa Ann's body in the canyon, mm-hmm. it, they had to look a couple of times. First, it took they don't, two they times to find her. Correct. Yes. They're thinking this is this is all a prank. This is mm-hmm. this is not real. When they finally realize that we are dealing with this is the truth, someone's calling in. Right. Um, almost like a game. Yeah. With, uh, with what's what's happening here. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if you want to say this yet. You may be leading up to this, but. It turned out that that phone call that Judith Ann Neely, we we all know now, placed about Lisa Ann Milliken's disappearance matched the voice of a girl who had called a few weeks earlier to the Rome Police Department to take credit for some other things that were going on. So it was a pattern that she established, and it was one of the things that eventually ended up getting her caught because when the authorities started to piece together these phone calls, they realized that there was a common thread in all of them, and, of course, that turned out to be Judith Ann Neely. Right, and we can dissect some of those calls here in just a moment um but once they found the body they determined what uh they determined that lisa ann milliken had uh, who had been missing at three days uh, for three days when she was found um had been injected with some sort of chemical uh multiple times and ultimately she was shot in the back and pushed over the edge of an 80-foot canyon at little river canyon national park in DeKalb county and as more details come out about the crime in the in the days to come, they'll not only learn that she was tortured and murdered, but she was also raped. Um, it's very difficult to know when she left the arcade with Judith Ann Neely mm-hmm. and her husband Alvin Neely, yep. and we'll we'll talk about them in just a moment. To she left with them her own free will. It seems like that was a pattern that Judith Ann Neely ultimately was discovered to have established. She would approach single girls, young girls uh, in parking lots, uh, shopping malls, walking down the side of the street headed towards their home and ask them to come get in the car and go for a ride with her. Uh, Judith Ann Neely did the same thing to another girl in the mall earlier that day, and that girl was with her husband, and they declined the the offer for uh, to ride around town. So probably... That's the same approach that got Lisa Ann Milliken into the car with Judith Ann Neely. The the way the Neelys operated, they drove around in separate cars and talked to each other on CB radios, which was a big thing back in the 80s. If you've ever seen Convoy or Smokey and the Bandit, you get the idea of what kind of communication they had. And that was how they uh, talked to each other. And that's how they, I guess maybe it looked a little bit more innocent if it was a an 18-year-old girl asking a 13-year-old girl to go for a ride as opposed to an 18-year-old girl and her 31-year-old husband together asking you to go for a ride. Right, right. So they left the mall and kept her in multiple motel rooms for three days, and ultimately when they realized that they were going to be in big trouble if they let her go, Judith Ann Neely drove her to the the canyon, to the edge of the canyon, and and did what we just talked about. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about Judith Ann Neely. Judith Ann Neely was born Judith Ann Adams in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1964 when her father died in a motorcycle wreck when she was nine years old. Her family reports that this was pretty much the turning point 
for our little Julie, Julie, Judy. Sorry about that. Um, For her, she basically, this was the traumatic event that pretty much turned her to stone. And a pretty traumatic event, I would think, for any nine-year-old. Not excusing anything that happened after that, but it certainly does change your life. Right. For the worst. When she was 15 or 16, there's there's reports of both. Mm -hmm. In 1980 or 1979, one of the two years, she married Alvin Neely, and he was 26 years old. And she's 15 or 16. So right. There's, there's a, a, an idea of the age difference there. And also an idea of how young she is when this crime is committed. Because in 1982, she's 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 17. I said 18. She was actually abducts still Abducts yeah. Lisa Ann Millicent and ultimately injects her six different times with something equivalent to Drano. Right. And when that doesn't kill her, she walks her to the edge of the canyon shoots her in the back and pushes her over the edge. This is all done, and Alvin Neely is not present. Mm-hmm. Alvin Neely is present in the hotel rooms for the rape yeah. and some of the torture. However, he is 40 miles away in the state of Georgia when this happens at Little River Canyon. Yeah. And we'll kind of get to that at w- uh, when Katie talks a little bit about the trial. So they get married, and they have, as you mentioned earlier, this mode of operation. They drive around mm. in two different vehicles. They have CB radios. Some of their first crimes happened in Georgia um, at the home of Ken Dooley. He was a Georgia Youth Development Center employee, and this is where Judith Ann stayed for a while. Yeah, she'd gotten into trouble a couple of years earlier at Riverbend Mall. She'd stolen a, a woman's purse and had been caught and punishment at the time she was a juvenile and she was also pregnant with twins I believe uh, and she ended up at this youth development center it was called back then a, a sort of the foster system in the state of Georgia I suppose mm-hmm. and she'd been there two years before mm-hmm. another one of the little dots that got connected eventually that helped them to find her yes so Ken Dooley is at home one evening and he receives a phone call it's from a woman and she's stating that she's going to attack him because of the sexual abuse she experienced while she was there at the youth development center. And then after the call, four shots were fired into his home. Mm-hmm. I don't believe anyone was, was killed or, or seriously No, no one was injured. injured. No one was injured. Just right. obviously there's some bullets that had been uh, delivered through the window. Exactly. Then we have Linda Adair, who was also an employee of the same youth development center. She received a phone call just before a Molotov cocktail was thrown into her garage. You know, there was no, uh, no one was injured in that attack, but I, I'm sure it did quite a bit of damage yeah. um, to her home and in her garage. So, so this was a pattern of the Neelys, the phone calls, the driving around in separate vehicles um, before they would commit a crime. So when the phone calls start coming in to these police departments about this, body in the canyon or the little girl that was, quote, on run mm-hmm. from the youth center, right? Um, then they're able to start piecing this together. But the final piece comes from another victim. And, Scott, do you want to tell us about the other victim who finally gave us this final piece? Yeah, sure. A couple of days after Lisa Ann Milliken's body was left in the canyon, uh, the Neelys were back in Rome, added again the very same pattern, the very same method of operation. Uh, 
they approached a, a couple walking down the sidewalk. She did. Judith Ann Neely did alone. Picked, uh, asked him if they wanted to go for a ride, and they were a few blocks from, from home but maybe bored that afternoon. I don't know. They got in the car with her, and she immediately gets on the CB radio with someone who she presents to them as a stranger. They drive around for a while. It ends up getting dark. They pull over so that they can so that the guys can go to the bathroom, and the next thing they know, a man named John Hancock, who was 22 or 23 at the time, is being walked down a dirt road by Judith Ann Neely with a gun in his back. Uh, Janice K. Chapman has been moved from Judy's car to Alvin's car, and Judy walks uh, walks John Hancock out into the woods, and, and the way he describes it in the book by Thomas Cook that I read, he just happened to shift his weight just a second before she pulled the trigger, and I think that prevented the bullet maybe from going into the middle of the back of his spine, and it caught him in the shoulder instead. So he drops over, plays dead, uh, skipping ahead a couple of hours. He ends up in the emergency room at Floyd Medical Center. Uh, the man who's investigating the Judith Ann Neely or the, the Lisa Ann Milliken disappearance, or I guess it's the murder at that point, just happens to grab the police report from the previous night and notices that this man has been shot. They go and talk to him. They bring him into the police station to give a statement. And as he is walking by one of the investigative rooms in the police department, he hears one of those recordings that Judy made when she called and threatened either Ken Dooley or Linda Adair. And John Hancock stops in the hallway and says, that's the woman who shot me. I recognize her voice. And so he was able to help put that final piece. That was and they were eventually able to and, locate. You know, the ironic thing Judy. is that Judy Judith Ann Neely personally carved every piece of the puzzle that ended up being put together and leading authorities to her. So a criminal mastermind, she certainly was not, uh, but but an evil but person, yes. Uh, and we'll talk about this. Katie can touch on this in just a moment. But definitely way more of a mastermind than Alvin. Definitely the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. brains of the operation or For the sure. quote, quote brains. We are going to take a short break and shout out our one and only sponsor, Kelly, True Crime on Easy Street is brought to you by the Easy Street it's restaurant. It's not the Easy Street. It's just Easy Street. I got in trouble with one of the owners last week when I said that, right, Katie? Holy crap. Did you just correct me during the freaking commercial for our sponsor? <laughs> we are brought to you by Easy Street Restaurant, Bar, and Performance Hall. That's the editor in him. Yeah, sorry. That's I, fine. That was, a, that was a red pen circled in the air. <laughs> so what do you drink when you go there uh usually it's something with vodka in it uh depending on who uh the bartender is if i'm the bartender i usually forget to pour the liquor into the drink that's why i'm not a very good bartender and they only let me bartend from 11 to 12 on saturdays i would be so mad at you if i just got a glass of tonic water i've done it to myself <laughs> <laughs> i love they have a they have a mango beer on draft I'm not much it's of a beer delicious. guy. I'm Mango the, cart. I I'm more love of the, it. I'm more of the bottom shelf on the liquor cabinet kind of guy. That's my wheelhouse. <laughs> they also have some sort of uh, peanut butter porter that's on draft there. It's Something delicious. like that. Yeah, the, the, the handle on the tap sort of looks like a uh, a jar of Jif peanut butter. I, yeah. I think it's a, it's a total ripoff. It's a, it's a well, dead it's delicious. Ringer. It's delicious, but it has very high well, if you like beer, it, I guess alcohol it is. content, so oh, be yeah? careful. There's more alcohol than, in that alcohol. More than regular peanut butter? <laughs> if yeah. I'm pouring, I don't forget the liquor. I'm a tequila soda 
kind of person. Well, you can, I mean, ah. if, if you've got a bottle of tequila in your hand, you can smell it. So there's no forgetting to pour tequila. There's no forgetting the tequila. <laughs> right, right. So on Easy Street, uh-huh. when you've arrived, yes. what do you eat there, Scott? Oh, gosh, usually it's something uh, on the burgers menu. I really like the sliders, which is sort of a gourmet crystal burger. It's the, the onions and the pickles and the mustard on the little square buns, but it's a really, it's a nice handmade piece of, of beef that comes on all three of the burgers and you get waffle fries. Nothing, the salads are delicious. Nothing goes better with alcohol than some sort of fancy version of a crystal. Or, <laughs> yes, I mean, if you can find one, that's great. I've settled for the regular old crystal burger many times, but this is crystal even better. Crystal is not a sponsor of us. No, so they are not. You would think so. There's not one for street. 30 miles, so we're not even going to direct you to the one down the street when the show's over if you come visit the live show. I love the Philly. Oh, yeah, the Philly. Very good. Mm-hmm. Very good yeah. sandwich. Yes, and I love all the, the salads and the fish. Mm-hmm. Salad. I get oh. side-eye side for that. And I know one of the things that the owners are big on, and Katie can second this, they really wanted to have a fantastic selection of steaks. And there's a filet, there's a couple of uh, ribeyes, there's a sirloin, and they're all cooked to perfection, to order, and I haven't had anybody that I've heard send one back because we didn't cook it the right way. Uh, and they're just fantastic. They melt in your mouth. The, the Which one comes with the compound butter? Is that the ribeye? The ribeye comes with the compound oh. butter, yes. So that delicious. Made you had me at butter. If, you, if I'm bringing you that steak and you ask me for steak sauce, I'm going to dump it in your lap because you don't need it. Do not order steak sauce if you get the ribeye with the compound <laughs> butter. But the customer is always right, yeah, and I'm sure they'll right. get you a bottle well, of steak sauce. Well, in if my mind, I will dump it in his lap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you so much, Easy Street. We are so excited to be partnering with you for this and you give us the stage two nights a month it's so awesome for us to be able to do our live podcast there and we get to meet with some folks who love true crime the way that we do and hopefully don't throw tomatoes exactly we get the community <laughs> involved and we're far away yes we are far away so you can bring that bring your good arm if you're going to throw something yeah. at us yeah bring somebody with an arm we're we're up on that stage and this place if you've never been to easy street it was built from the stage out i mean it was built to be a performance hall first and foremost that's why shane gibbons one of the owners wanted that in the sign out front uh there's a fantastic light show the sound is everywhere it's, you're, you're right in the middle of the biggest experience you can get in this area for live entertainment whether it's music or uh, or us, do yeah. Uh, I was musical, other musical duos, or or the guys bringing up the rear, the easy uh, true crime on the easy caboose, street crowd, the, the yeah. podcast caboose. That's so us. stop by and enjoy unique performances, great original menu items, and drink specials that can only mean you've arrived on Easy Street. And now back to the case. Okay. All right. So now we have the Neelys in custody. Particularly, we're focusing on. Judith and Neely. So we fast forward not too far ahead. Pretty quick trial, right, Katie? Yes, absolutely. She's uh, arrested in October, and we have trial beginning here in March of 83. So we're in Fort Payne, Alabama now, which is where the district court is held at this time. Well, still is. And Judith Ann Neely is appointed an attorney. His name is, and he goes by Bob French. Of course, she doesn't have the funds to procure an attorney on her own, so the state has to provide her with one. He brings on a co-counsel named Steve Busman. Um, judge Randall Colleth, the, the district judge at the time, appoints him, basically forces him to take the case. He does not want to take this case. He begs him not to. He basically 
lets him know that he will be subpoenaed if he doesn't agree to take the case. He makes five hundred dollars to take this monumental case. Or at eighty two. No. This monumental life changing case. He makes a whopping five hundred dollars. And then we move on and jury selection begins. We have more women on this jury than men, which is exactly what the defense was after. And you may be thinking, how can someone defend a person who is basically, yeah, yeah basically gave a confession at this point? You know, she's called in the crime. They've got her on tape. Well, the defense decides that it wasn't her fault. You know, oh. yes, yes. So they bring in a defense that has never been used before at the time called the battered woman syndrome. It basically states that battered women don't live in the same reality as everyone else. They're the choices they make are from their own reality, which is that they don't have any other choice but to do what this man or person is telling them to do because they have been brainwashed, basically. So the defense spends their time finding inconsistencies in her statement to try to prove that she was omitting Alvin's involvement to prove that he had made her do what she did. So she was purposefully omitting Alvin's involvement to save him, which in their in the turn of events, they try to spin and say that she was omitting it, which she wasn't omitting anything. They, the, point was, the point of the matter is that she had inconsistencies in her statement, so they were trying to say that she was omitting his involvement when there was very minimal involvement past the rape and torture that we discussed earlier. Which he definitely did time for. Yes. In Georgia. Or in Georgia. Until the day he died. Mm -hmm. Which was, what, 16 years ago now? 2005, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they try to get uh, old Judy tried as a juvenile because she was 17 at the time she committed the crime. That didn't fly. Uh, She was declared competent for trial. They wanted her declared incompetent. That that didn't fly either because Judy was of above average intelligence, we come to find out, much more so than her counterpart, Alvin. Yeah, I mean, is that as that information started to come to light back then, I can only assume that as, as more and more people spoke with Alvin, and again, in the mm-hmm. book that I read, it was pretty obvious from some of the statements that he made that he was just kind of this, he was the big bumbling goofball of this duo, uh, and she was, for lack of a better term, the brains of the entire operation. Exactly. And so, you know, the, the state brings in witness after witness. They have star testimony. They're killing the prosecution. The defense has two main witnesses. The first one is Alvin's ex-wife, who testified that he was an abusive husband and that he manipulated her and he controlled her. And their big statement they got out of her was they asked her, would you do anything Alvin told you to do? And she said yes. And they said, would you kill a 13-year-old girl if Alvin told you to do it? And her answer was yes. So So they're blaming the big bad Man who, who was, was 40 miles away when it 40 happened. 40 miles away when it happened. I guess if you could sell him on the battered woman syndrome defense, it wouldn't matter where he was mm-hmm. because the damage that he would have inflicted upon her would already be done. I guess so. But ultimately, they were not able to prove any of these claims that they were making about the abuse that Judy suffered. Correct, Katie? Exactly, yes. She she testifies to the fact of that she was abused and manipulated she was just doing what she was told. They asked her if she had any feelings towards any of the crimes she had committed, and her statement was no. She had no feelings about any of the matters that she was doing as she was told. That helped her 
none in you know, the eyes of the jury. Not at all. It's certainly not in this room helping yeah. her. No, no, no. no. Ju- I think the jury agrees with us. Yes, yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so, the trial, you know, begins beginning of March. March 9th, the trial begins. March 22nd, she is found guilty. Uh, the jury votes 10 to 2 to sentence her to life without parole. In Alabama, when a capital murder case takes place, the jury's uh, sentencing is just a suggestion. The judge, there's a separate sentencing hearing, and the judge actually places the sentence. And Judge Randall Cole comes back at the sentencing, sentencing hearing and goes on top of the jury's recommendation and sentences. At the time, 18-year-old Judith Ann Neely to death by the electric chair. Making her the youngest woman in Alabama, as well as the United States, to be sentenced to death, correct? Exactly. Right. So she is sentenced to death in 1983, yet she is still alive. She's still with us. And in Tutwiler today. How could something crazy like that have happened? Oh, my goodness. So in 1999, inner Fob James. Scott, in 1999. Mm -hmm. Yes. 2000, zero, zero, party Mm -hmm. over. What were you... What were you doing? Well, after I finished partying, I went back to my job, and that was as the managing editor of what was called The Post at the time. We've since merged with another paper, and now we are The Post-Herald. But in 1999, the word got out that Bob James had just, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, guys? Help me out here. Commuted. Commuted her sentence, thank you, from from death in the electric chair to life without parole, and there, therein lies the catch, because when I talked to him on the phone about it, and I picked up the phone and called him, and, and didn't really think I was going to be able to find him, but I called information, and they gave me, I said, Bob James, please, and they gave me his number, and I called, and his wife answered, and I asked if I could speak to the governor, and she said, well, he's out on a tractor right now, but I'll have him call you back. Well, I figured that was... In Alabama. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I figured that was going to be the end of that. 40 minutes later, the phone rang. It was Bob James. Hey, Scott, this is Bob James. What can I do for you? So I just asked him, why did you commute the the death sentence of uh, Judith Ann Neely? And we had a a 10 or 15-minute conversation. The story is still out there on the Internet somewhere, if you can find it. I don't know where it is. It is at www.postpaper.com forward slash jamesneely.htm. Wow. Somebody did their homework. Someone else did not. Or just a quick Google. We'll get you there. (laughs) Google curses again. Um, so basically what he said to me is that he went through a lot of the information, uh, talked to his attorney, attorneys about it, and he just didn't feel like that the judge made the right call in this case. He felt like the, the 10 to 2 jury vote to give her life in prison was the correct sentence, and so that's why he commuted it. The problem was that in Alabama, when you commute no. a death sentence. Well, first things okay. first, Yes. Um, let's just, you know, Quickly skip over the fact that you got the governor of the state of Alabama on the phone just and by he called me back. Yeah, just by you know <laughs> after, looking up his number. After he, he was, was the former riding governor. his track. He was already the former governor at the time, so he'd moved yes. home to go back to work on his farm. But you know, you'd think he'd have a security detail or, or an answering service or something. Nope, his <laughs> wife answered. He called me back. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. But no, what Fob James had done was when he issued the order, he did not specify whether it was life with or without parole. Ah, and if there the is road. not a specification, it is automatically life with the chance of parole. In 15 years, right? In the, yes, yeah. in the state of Alabama, the sentence is life, uh, life with the possibility of parole. You, you serve 15 years, you're eligible for a parole hearing. So in 15 years, in 2014, she was eligible for a parole hearing. Yeah, we were back at it again, and I remember talking to Mike O'Dell, who is the current DA here in the 9th District, 
he was the assistant DA at the time. He was involved in the prosecution and all of the things that had to do with Judith Ann Neely. And he had already told me that, that the governor's office never reached out to them to, to let them know that there was going to be a commutation of the death sentence. And so that basically put it on Mike O'Dell's radar. And he's told me in past conversations that he always knows what the status of Judith Ann Neely's parole situation is because he wants to make sure and be at every hearing. He wants to let the families know everything that can be done in the state of Alabama by the state of Alabama to keep Judith Ann Neely from benefiting from Rob James' mistake uh, will be done. And Well, speaking of, in 2003, they tried to do just that. The Alabama right. legislature um, passed a law that stated that a person whose death sentence is commuted to life by the governor is not eligible for parole. This was later found unconstitutional on a couple of grounds. One was ex post facto, which is a ban on retroactive laws, which the legislature tried to argue that it wasn't retroactive because they only made it effective till 1998, which was the year before her sentence was commuted, not until 1982 when she committed the crime. Right. That didn't work. And then also a uh, bill of attainder, which means that laws aimed at, you can't have a law that's aimed at one person or a small group of people. And they might as well have called this the Judy law. Oh, yeah, exactly. for real. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of speculation as to why Fob James would have done this. And you spoke with him and he mm-hmm. said, you know, he just felt like the jury and that, that was what would would be, it would, wouldn't have been justice. That, that was that correct? His, that was his well-rehearsed answer for any media who might question him you could kind of tell that he he didn't stutter or stammer through that as I recall he knew exactly what he was going to say that conversation had been held before the phone rang Uh, right right I'm sure you were not the first person probably not to call him and say what were you thinking what the hell were you thinking (laughs) exactly so some people think that possibly a case in the state of Texas in 1998 may have had something to do with that Mm -hmm. we have a lady by the name of Carla Faye Tucker who was executed in Texas on February the 3rd, 1998. And because she had recently converted to Christianity before her execution, many believe that her sentence should have been commuted to life because she was expressing remorse, all of those things that you know she was saying. He did not want to uh, catch the same heat for executing a woman who had who was recently, which Judy had already uh, had also done. She, she in, had when, talked about converting prison, to Christianity. She, yes, yes. A, a born again Christian. Exactly. Right. So so there was a lot of speculation that maybe he did not want to set that execution date for her because of this and which, catch the heat that there was a lot of heat going on in Texas about it. Um, at the end of the day, that's a tall order to set someone's execution date for sure. Ab- yeah, sure. It is a tall. It's a lot order. on your conscience. It is. Um, but as governor that is unfortunately part of your job don't run for the job if you don't want the responsibility of doing your job right so he's being pressured to give an execution date and just decides no we're gonna we're gonna commute he punts it was the easier In football parlance I he think. punted correct yeah so there's that's that's the most common opinion as to actually why did he do this and because she was a woman and she was so young when the death sentence was given to her that, you know, she may have caught a break there. Absolutely caught a break there. Yep. And so she comes eligible for parole in 2014, and then what happens, Katie? She waives her parole hearing. She states that she didn't want to put the family of her victims through that. How sweet of her. 
Very noble, Judith. Playing the long game until the very end, that <laughs> Judith Ann Neely. Well, and Judy does come up for parole again in 2023. You so got to figure that's the date she had circled when she turned down that parole hearing in 2014, right? Hey, maybe when I'm 63 years old or 59, whatever she'll be in 2023, maybe she's thinking, maybe I can get out then if I wave this one. Who knows? Nobody's ever going to find Who out what's knows? going on in that woman's head. But. Right. Well, and two, Bob James advisors may have thought to themselves, no one's ever going to release her. That may have been what they were thinking when they advised him that, that she would not see the light of day. They're thinking no parole board is going to grant her parole, but who knows? If we're still around in 2023, we'll certainly give you an update. Scott, yes. you are uh-huh. on that parole board in 2023. Right. How are you voting? Uh, you want the short answer or the long answer? Short answer, long answer, absolutely not. Okay. The woman right. never sees the light of day again. Uh, that doesn't have a, a set of iron bars between her and the sunshine. Okay, I agree. I would vote no as well. That is not justice for Lisa Ann. Mm-hmm. I know that there's nothing that we can do to make what happened to Lisa Ann right. It was a horrible way for a 13-year-old to die, for her to ha- things for her to have to endure in her last days of life. Uh, and I absolutely would not set this child murderer free. Yes, absolutely not. I vote no. As I've heard someone say, we don't have a justice system here. We have a legal system. But I think legally, with this parole board hearing, we can keep her exactly where she belongs, which is in women's prison for the rest of her life. Yep, it's Tutwiler until the end. Yeah, send her a card if you like. <laughs> right, so this is our this is our case on uh, Lisa Ann Millicent and the murderous Judith Ann Neely. That comes to the end of our show. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. We'd love those five stars. We don't really care what you leave in the comments with them. I'm just kidding. Tell us what you really think. Let us know if you've got any upcoming cases you'd like to hear from us. And as always, come see us every other Tuesday night at Easy Street. Follow us on all social media platforms. We post most of our updates on Instagram because that is what I am most familiar with. And they have tasked me with running the social media platforms. So... There is that. See sneak peeks of upcoming cases. Hear everything that's going on with us. And come back to where you're listening now for the next recorded episode. We hope to have these up every Wednesday. So we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys.